Nobody gives a monkeys about happy sheets and butts on seats. Build your own table and invite people to that. How can they ever see your learning as valuable if they don't even know it exists? I've worked in L&D for 27 years and we always seem to be in an existential crisis trying to justify our existence. I'm going to say change your bait because every time we have the same offering and we expect to catch different fish. If you want to change how you're perceived, change what you do. So thanks so much for joining us today, guys. This is our first ever live recording of the Marketing for Learning podcast. It is set to be an incredible session. We've got some amazing industry leaders here joining myself and Han today to chat about everything to do with the employee value proposition. So before we go any further, I think it wouldn't would be remiss of me to introduce myself and Han can introduce herself and then I'd love to introduce our guests and then we'll get straight into it. So my name is Ashley Sinclair. You guys hopefully know me if you've been listening to the podcast for any time at all. I've been working in marketing in the learning industry for about 10 years now and Han and I run a fancy little company called Math Marketing. Han? So I'm the other half of Math Marketing <laughs> um, and like I said if you've listened to the podcast you know our weird and wonderful accents already. Um, I'm super excited for today. This is something so new for the podcast and it's going to be a good one. On top of that, we're joined by Edmund Monk. He is the CEO and co-founder of the LPI, who are a global body for workplace learning. He's responsible for numerous initiatives and services that support the learning profession, including the Learning Awards, which just actually happened last Thursday, Learning Live, the Learning and Performance Accelerator, the Capability Map, as well as LPI Learn. He's a regular keynote speaker on the future of learning and is one of the most influential people in learning. Serena, would you mind? No, I was going to say, would you mind introducing yourself? No, let's not do that. I'm going to introduce you if I can get my chat up. Where did it go? Uh-oh, I've lost it, Serena. <laughs> so Serena has been, she's been working in talent management and organizational development for over 20 years. She is a fellow of the LPI herself. So there's some connections between Ed and Serena already. And she is an industry stalwart. She is was just recently up as a finalist for Learning Leader of the Year at the Learning Awards, another connection between you two guys. And on top of that, she has just been promoted to a role of global head of talent at Software One. So she's in charge of the kind of overall people strategy at that organization. So very well placed to talk about um, EVP. On top of that, Serena's also been in the process of writing a, a doctorate. Serena, what's the actual title of your doctorate? Oh, it's the future of learning in hypergrowth, scale-ups, and tech accelerating firms. Perfect. So again, she's been doing a lot of data analysis around the future of L&D and what it actually is going to mean for us, what we need to do to get there. So two people who know a lot about our world, who are going to help us talk about learning and development and the EVP and how these two things are or are not intrinsically linked. So before we get started, I think let's just... Let's just set the scene. What you know? What is the what is an EVP? Because to me, the employee value proposition is quite clear. Um, and the reason I wanted to talk about it today is because I see a lot when we're talking to clients and when we talk on this podcast that we're not very good at always zooming out in L&D. We can be quite siloed as a function and we can be quite blinkered in terms of outcomes and don't always relate what we do towards business impact. So actually changing our lens and focusing more on the EVP is something that's going to help us provide wider business impact and also 
embed learning as a vital component of any organization. Ed, did you have any thoughts? What What's your opinion? What is the EVP in your terms? I think it's, well, first of all, hello, everyone. And thank you for the very nice introduction. Um, I feel like we should just listen to Serena, actually, in her doc doctorate, but I'm going to, I'll give you my best uh, with my experience. Employee value proposition, EVP, is traditionally, um, we refer to that as the, the kind of unique set of benefits or rewards and increasing the opportunities um, that an employer offers to attract and retain talent to or employees. So it now it's the total package of what an organization offers to its employees. And that's in exchange for their skills, their knowledge and experience. Um, it tends to encompass now the tangible and the intangible rewards. So compensation, benefits, work-life balance, um, career development opportunities. I'm sure Serena will talk about company culture as well, job security. Um, and a sense of purpose, actually, post-pandemic, that's more important than ever. So trying to communicate the employer's brand to potential and current employees is where EVP fits now. And obviously, it's important to try and have a strong one because you can attract top talent. What do you think? I, my, my observations, both from looking at startups, hypergrowth, the new organizations, going, those going through huge digital transformation, uh, and, and ours um, accelerating at in incredibly rapid pace is that the, the intangibles more to Ed's point um, are, are more and more valuable now. Your employee value proposition does include the integrity with which people look at the company. What is its view in the marketplace? What is it doing around CSR? Uh, what is it doing around ESG? Um, what does it have around culture? I think Ed mentioned that as well. And we, we keep talking about the, you know, the fun element, the bring your whole self to work element and all of that bit all those buzzwords now um, are very, very much part of an employer's value proposition and how candidates in the market view them. Yeah, I think um, following on from that, Serena, as well, do you think the pandemic changed things? Because I'll, I'll give you a little bit of my view on it. Um, EVP was kind of you know, bundled in with corporate social responsibility in, in some ways, and you, know, you can see links between those two. And in the pandemic, we saw some really good examples of CSR, like... Um, Louis Vuitton, Moy Hennessy, producing hand sanitizing gel rather than perfume. Um, and that increased their share value ultimately over a longer period. So it, there is corp, you know, commercial value in, in doing this as well. And I remember speaking to somebody within the pandemic when it was a kind of webinar every day, actually, about the, the business roundtable, which is this network of CEOs in America. And, and they met in October 2019, so just before the COVID outbreak. And they it's a network of the top CEOs in America. They came out of the meeting and they said that the sole purpose of a business was no longer to generate profit. And that was a direct reference to a quote from Milton Friedman in the New York Times, which is like the basis of modern capitalism. And now they said their core purpose is their people and the wider society. And I think you can see that link between the change there post-pandemic and now people being really focused on EVP. Is that something you're seeing as well? Um, 
So the one thing I'll say that employees' um, general memory is is quite short. So yes, there was a change during pandemic. Um, how people treated their employees, you know, who was furloughed, who kept them on, what redundancies there were. Yes, that big, played a big part. We were very proud in Software One. Nobody was made um, redundant at all during the the pandemic. No job losses whatsoever. In fact, we grew. Uh, I, I'm I'm one of those hires during the pandemic. Um, but on the on a longer term basis, um, employees have very short memories uh, and things move on and people forget about a culture and people forget about a history and, and people buy a new history um, of, often. And I think it goes, um, yes, it was important back then. And yes, there, there are what we would call um, system shocks and what was the, the pandemic, then there was war, now there is uh, the earthquake and there'll be a, a new system shock. And how companies respond to that, how they are seen to, uh, to play a part in making things better or taking a stand does absolutely um, contribute to their value proposition because that's how potential employees as well as their shareholders see them. How are you contributing? How are you reacting to what's around you? Yeah, I mm. think um, that's very interesting, actually, because the perception of employee value proposition is almost more important than actually what it is, arguably. Um, it's a branding exercise. Yeah. I, I, I mean, would you, say. You'll know that better than anybody, Ash, of course. <laughs> and that's why, that's why the question, right? Who owns the EVP? Yeah, and actually, we have a poll built. So if, Han, can you get that poll up? Because we wanted to actually ask that question, you know, who who owns the EVP in the organization? Because it'd be interesting to see if, if L&D has any, any role to play in it at the moment in your organization. So any of you who are listening today, if you have a chance to just respond to that poll that stood in front of you. Because I think that, you know, that's the interesting thing for me is, you know, this, this is a, it is a branding exercise, you know, EVP is, is about attraction and retention, right? So it's about how people externally see you and whether they'll consider joining your organization, but it's also the lived experience as an employee, whilst you're employed by that business. And why would you move on to somewhere else if you've got everything that you need here, you know, and I think that is what, where it kind of fits in nicely to L&D, because, you know, career development, career progression, evolution of skills, upskilling, reskilling, all of that lovely stuff, which helps someone's career continue to ascend or go in the direction that they want it to. The EVP plays a role in that. And so does L&D. So kind of we got the results on that. Interesting. So those of you listening, we've got 52% HR, 24% people, 8% talent acquisition, um, 4% across L&D and marketing and other with a miraculous 8%. Does that is that what you would expect to see, Serena? So it's usually split for me between HR and talent acquisition, right? So yeah. the HR are the crafters of the the benefits and the and and the packages and the policies, uh, but talent ac acquisition is what takes them out to the market, which shows them uh, to the world and makes us look attractive. Um, it, it is a little bit. Um, it's interesting to see how little a role people perceive. L&D and marketing play yeah. uh, in, 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 in your employer brand. But I suppose this is, oh, I'm, I'm seeing the chat. And what they're trying to say is that HR plus L&D plus marketing is 
more or less one people thing. Um, yeah, I, th I think maybe, Serena, I mean, the question is a very clever one because you can only pick one of those to give you the data, um, which doesn't surprise me. Um, but it, there are a number of entities within there who would arguably own employee value proposition. Obviously, the question, again, is quite cleverly structured because the ownership of EVP probably does traditionally sit with HR in terms of corporate ownership. But the responsibility for it, you know, that's probably with everyone. And yet people were scored quite low on there. Um, you, you brought up a point as well, actually, that I just wanted to pick up on, on employee value proposition being about talent attraction and retention. But uh, I think there's also something else that it adds to, which is, and you started to touch on it, the lived experience. And if mm. you drive that straight through to kind of what's the organizational benefit of good EVP, then I would argue that it is productivity and, and motivation. We, we live at a time where there's the great resignation, there's a hybrid workforce, some people really struggling to work from home in terms of motivation. So EVP can really, a strong EVP can dramatically impact that actually. It isn't just the talent side, it can make people like their job more and therefore be more productive. I don't want to get too deep about this, but I think it's an important point worth making. Yeah, and I mean, I think, you know, in my head, I think like all that stuff sounds quite fluffy and intangible. It's a bit ineffable, really. Like, how does someone feel? It's quite difficult to measure. So again, like translating that back to business impact, which I, I know is something we both want to kind of talk about a little bit further and really kind of the crux of how this really makes sense for us from an L&D perspective. But I think, you know, that is precisely it because it's the same with brands. Like I always say branding exists in the hearts and minds of people. Like it isn't a logo. It isn't a color palette. It's actually what people think and feel about you. And you can't easily affect that. You can, but it takes time and effort. So, you know, things like Glassdoor, you know, that has a major impact mm. on the EVP, right? Even and, and you don't have a huge amount of control over what people are going to put on a public domain like that. So, you know, the work needs to be done at a fundamental level when people are working for you or at the earlier attraction stages to actually prove value. So even if they do move on, they they have a they're left with a good taste in their mouth, not a bad one, I guess. Mm. And EVP is part of the culture of the organization and culture is obviously owned by everybody. Mm. Um, so it's it's a great poll because it gives an indication as to ownership but i think if it was responsibility it's probably everyone so one of the things that that we you know another intangible but it's actually quite measurable is, is the stickiness to an organization um mm. so you look back at you know the, the the japanese car manufacturer companies companies like ibm where people joined when they were 16 and stayed till the end and it wasn't that long it was one generation ago it was our parents generation people stayed with companies now we could put that down to a lot less choices organizations are forming merging being acquired growing uh, and folding at a faster place a pace than ever before in history right now so you could be as simple and put that down to choice, but you could do a little bit of analysis and go, what makes somebody stay with an organization? What is it that makes somebody um, sticky to a firm? And yes, it is the opportunity, career opportunities. And yes, it is your salary, uh, but it is the intangibles. It's that fulfillment at work. It's seeing a future. It's knowing that being here I will go somewhere. And above all, it is being able to connect 
with the purpose and that purpose. So you start going Maslow a bit now. The purpose of what I'm doing or why I am contributing plays a big part in, in why people stay. And that is part of that, that can be measured. That's attrition. You know, that's productivity. That is competency measures. And then you can say, yes, all that together forms part of my, my EVP because people stay with us um, for, for over, over time. So I think, yes, there are tangibles and intangibles, but not all intangibles are immeasurable. Mm, I completely agree. Yeah. And the intangibles are increasingly what counts, actually. They are. You're right from the, the 90s when Google started their campus or the concept of a campus. If you're there and your pool table's there and your gym is there and your buddies are there and your mates are there and you make it into a place people want to be part of. And the challenge now is doing the same thing, but in a hybrid manner, in a global, global manner. But if you mm. start connecting those connections, if feeling connected to people, feeling connected to a firm, all part of your EVP. Yeah, what Google also did the research a few years ago on what makes a successful team. Um, I know you are familiar with that. And the number one thing that came out of that was psychological safety. Mm-hmm. Um, having good psychological safety is an employee value proposition. You know, but it's haunted by the ghost of Maslow now. He's somewhere. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I love your phrase going a bit Maslow. <laughs> I'm gonna, definitely going to steal that. But it's true, you know, people increasingly are aware of these things, they're they're cognizant of this idea of it being a safe environment, they can raise their hands, they can complain. And frankly, um, if they're not doing it to employee, uh, fellow employees or the employer, they're going to go to a democratized environment externally and voice their opinions, as you just said, Ash. So I think these are the things that are, uh, I don't want to say creeping in because it sounds negative, but I think there's an incremental growth in awareness that these things really matter to an employee. We know now that the kind of 18 to 30 age range in Europe is not selecting uh, their job primarily on um, salary anymore. It's on where you're gonna take me um, and where you're gonna get me to by the time I'm this age. So they're committed to a journey, but they also have a right to want to enjoy that job, work for a company with a purpose, feel that they're part of something where they can voice their opinion and they will go somewhere else if they if they don't have those things. So I can only see it as a good thing, really, that companies are now showing their commitment to this. And obviously L&D, you know, where I'm L&D through and through, L&D has to play a major part in that as well. Everything we've said just now proves is a sentence like we develop our people is no longer enough of a contribution from L&D to be part of an EVP because everybody does that, right? Yeah. And also yeah. Yeah, what, what makes you so special? Yeah, I got a platform too. I also have 67 content libraries with 20,000 courses each, what you got. So yeah. we develop our people is not enough of an EVP for L&D. And then mm. comes the question, how are you, con- back to your exam question, Ashley, how are we contributing as learning and development to a company's EVP? But we but, but but we bought you all a LinkedIn learning license, Serena. So what's the problem? You know, I thought right. that was our commitment. And be facetious. <laughs> but I mean, it's it's a valid point, though. I think you know, and that's what I was going to ask. Is you know, it's I think we're very clear on on what an EVP should be or how it can actually add value to a business if it's done well. I think we're all in agreement that in a in a 
beautiful world, every function in the organization are, are, should be playing a role in embedding a positive EVP, both externally and internally. But let's zoom back in. Let's look at, you know, what role L&D actually plays within all that, because, you know, that that to me is, you know, we, we can't control all of it. We can't control the external branding and things like that, of course, but we can still influence it. So, you know, in your opinion, I, I'll go to you first, Serena. What what role do you think or can you see and maybe some of your doctorate research will lean into this as well? You know, what can L&D actually do to positively contribute to a good EVP or an impactful EVP? Um, so I, I have my my views based on the, the, the academy and, and, and my role. And the biggest thing I'll say is its connection to your business strategy. If I can prove why I exist and how it impacts the wider organization and how you at an individual level, your development and your contribution and your career contributes to ultimately a company being successful, that's my biggest contribution to, to the EVP. I find it very strange when, I hate that phrase, seat at the table. I also hate the phrase, we ought to be connected to the business more. I mean, what the hell are you building for if you're not connected to your business? Um, and if you are connected to the business, then you'll understand why the business has this brand. You'll understand how the business shows value to its shareholders, to its board, and then how your what you're doing connects to that. I'll ask a simple question. I don't think it's a poll question, but I'm going to just say it. How many of us in L&D, as L&D leaders, know exactly what talent acquisition does? know the mix of people coming into our firm at any point of time during the year. How many of us are connected to what marketing does? Do you know how, how soon before a brand or a sub-brand is launched in your firm or we're putting out a campaign for our clients or for our employees, are you aware of? And I'm telling you a vast percentage are, are not connected to either. So take the talent acquisition bit. You don't know what talent acquisition is saying to the world to recruit people. We don't fully understand the levels at which they come in and when they come in and the numbers they come in. And then we have these people whose development and performance in the organization, we pay a part in growing. And guess what? If they fail, there's going to be at least once in their exit interview they, that they're going to say, we didn't get the right training. Because you know it is. It mm -hmm. just is. But how connected were we to the entire part of the people strategy, the brand strategy, and the organization business strategy in order to know those answers so that when people hit us, we know what we'll do that will take all those three strategies and our own learning strategy forward. So that would be, for me, the biggest connector. Mm. Yeah. Anything to add, Ed? A lot, yeah. <laughs> so, so many, so but, many feelings. But I, yeah, but I, I just, I love listening to Serena, as you well know, I'm a big fan. But um, the first thing I wrote down was don't mention seat at the table or connected to the business. I'm not going to do that for fear of death. Under warning. So, yeah, I have, I, so I won't be saying that. I just um, don't no, understand why one exists if they're still demanding that. I mean, but we'll, we'll have a separate well, As we said when we spoke yesterday, build your own table and invite people to that. You know, that's what we have to do. I've worked in L&D for 27 years and we always seem to be in an existential crisis trying to justify our existence. So um, it's nice to see people be more proactive. 
I want to back up a couple of your points uh, with data, because obviously we're a data house at the LPI. Um, interestingly, the Performance Consultancy Masterclass program is the most popular program at the LPI this year. And that's because people are needing to understand the language of business. Uh, and to further to your point, Serena, to have that interoperability with the other departments to understand how they work. So I don't think that's a coincidence. And secondly, you know, one of the data points we capture through Learning and Performance Accelerator is scoring the CLO relationship with other members of C-suite. And the CIO is obviously critical to a CLO these days because of purchase of LXPs, digital transformation. On average, the CLO scores their relationship with the CIO less than two out of 10. And yet they're so critical to each other. So I wanted to just further your points with that data. On a more philosophical point of view, in terms of how L&D can kind of add value in employer branding, there's two quotes that I really like. One was in The Economist saying, lifelong learning is an economic imperative. So, you know, we can talk about what should happen and what we think, but the figures show, the data shows that it's something that you have to do. You know, we, we have to be contributing. It's not a luxurious um, potential thing that we can do. It's a necessity now. And the other quote is it was described as the ultimate pension, lifelong learning. I think in a fast moving world now, L&D is probably the best way to attract great people um, and show that you are a people focused business. We know that the number one challenge for CLOs is a learning culture. So we need to get that right, which includes giving people the freedom to learn and all of the psychological safety stuff. But one in five workers is likely to switch employers within a year. That's the PwC report. That's a lot. So what happens in those organizations is you will have a shrinking and sometimes you know ill-equipped talent pool. So obviously it's a very competitive environment now and having a strong employee value proposition will ensure you keep those people and you attract the good ones. We've got the potential for a macroeconomic downturn now to put more pressure on that. So conveying EVP, and this is what Ash and uh, Hannah are brilliant at, but conveying your EVP through learning is now going to be critical. It's no good uh, just doing it. It has to be conveyed to the people. And people will pay and they will give time if they see learning as meaningful. Um, yep. A final data point I can share with you is that there is a real cost when employees aren't engaged or if they're um, actively disengaged. And it's $7.8 trillion a year or 11% of global GDP, according to Gallup. So if we think it's a kind of, yeah, it's something we do, we know we're pretty good at it. We give you an extra half a day every year and you get a license to a platform. It's not good enough, as Serena said. It's a very competitive environment and companies can do better. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you came armored with all the stats, Ed, because, uh, you know, I don't need to pull any out now. You've just got them all. It's <laughs> wonderful. Uh, you know, I, I think I wrote a few things down there that I just wanted to kind of dig into. I think, you know, for me, this EVP thing is really interesting because obviously we talk about value propositions from a marketing perspective all the time. You know, what what value, what's your value as an L&D function and how are you translating that to something to your employee base? We talk about it a lot, doing value proposition canvases and things like that. So to me, it's like a twofold thing where it's like, or maybe even threefold, how do we translate 
what we do in a learning function as valuable to our employees. So they see it as something that's useful, worth the investment and something that's credible, going to help them advance their career, whatever their motivators are. How do we then translate the value of our function to business impact? And how do we show our value that way? And then as a third one, how do we translate our value into the external brand and have that play a role in attraction because I think you know with the best will in the world you know looming skills gaps and the upskilling reskilling challenge our industry is now recently very obsessed with skills um and you know we're not going to be able to reskill everybody so we are still going to have to recruit and bring talent in so you know I think that that's it's just more of a, a bumbling thought really but to me it feels like there is these layers so almost we need to understand our value as a function first before we can translate it to how that makes sense for our learners and, and the wider business as a whole. I don't know if that makes any sense. Yeah, of course. I, I tried writing down questions, but I got lost. So if you've got them like in a list somewhere. I've I'll got some, yeah. So uh, what what couple of things I can I can say. So, you know, Ed said build your own table. I'm gonna say change your bait. Because every time we have the same offering and we expect to catch different fish. If you want to change how you're perceived, change what you what what you do, and before the fundamental part, we haven't really changed what we've done. So the first thing would be to your point: learning always feels like it's done to people. Um, it's something that involves an op- opportunity cost, which takes you away from what you're doing. And all, no matter how much we you know for talk about in the flow of work, it doesn't really really translate, especially not when you make many licenses and in you know equate consumption of content with with learning and what therefore has happened is as long as it's seen as disconnected from an, a person's everyday cycle of life it's always going to be a challenge to fit in um and because that means there's a conscious effort to fit it in and therefore when you're th- talking about upskilling and reskilling and it's all no two platforms, providers, databases will give you the same definition of skills. I can tell you, I'm in a technology company. It is incredibly complicated. Python is a snake and Java makes good coffee. Developing a developer, developing code, that's a skill. You know, the, the, and nobody had, there is no industry standard which teaches you how to build this but we know that we have to upskill people we know that the world of work and jobs are changing we know we have to make people i hate this word i don't know another fungible for the future which means malleable we all have to be able to shift to adapt and we do it nobody uses an abacus anymore human beings do it but bringing that knowledge into work and translating it into how people learn is where our challenge is and then you again it's that same thing my uh, we've got skills we then upskill we reskill we align that to business strategy we align that back to learning and career paths career paths equal to you know p- people moving up the ladder people coming from down equating to business productivity all that together is something you then go out and talk about and say yes this is the value i'm bringing to organization as an lmd i'm part of that journey of a person but i'm also part of that journey of the business and until we do that we'll always be this box of people in the corner who deliver courses and maintain a platform 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I have. I'm very opinionated on this stuff. I don't know if you noticed. I know that's um, why that's why we got you on the podcast, Serena. Such a <laughs> if you just sat there like a wallflower, I'd be dreadfully disappointed. I'm shocked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Absolutely. <laughs> it's true what you're saying, Serena. I uh, I agree with everything you're saying, and I think uh, upskilling and reskilling provides people with a sense of purpose, which is obviously important to all of us. You know, we want to feel useful. And, and if we aren't, we can change that now. Effectively, in most large companies, there's a freelance economy within those organizations and job descriptions are going out of the window. There needs to be an agility uh, within the talent pool to just bring people with certain skills onto projects. Even before the pandemic, we were struggling to keep up with technological changes and the sort of speed of that has increased even more post-pandemic. So finding talent with the right skills to stay ahead of the competition is pretty challenging these days in a very competitive environment. I think future-proofing um, is a necessity at the moment for organizations. Um, if teams are reduced or if budgets are cut, you still have to deliver projects, um, you still have to advance these major programs. Um, to stay, stay focused on remaining agile and being innovative is now actually critical. And I think there's a long-term advantage for those who can embrace that, you know, strategic disruption. Um, organizations that did that through the 2009 uh, economic crisis, they outperformed the market average by more than 30% back in 2009. So, you know, it's not just a cool thing to do. It has financial value. Absolutely. Why do I have all this mindless data in my head, by the way? I no, um, I thought you maybe had like a document. It's just, just no, coming out. You're like, it's just years of talking about this. 25 is alive. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm worried about myself now. I'm finding it's all gone Maslow again. Do you need help? Are you okay? Do we I'll need be to all right, help? Yeah. No, I'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, the one thing that, like, you know, obviously we, you talked a lot about performance consulting as being like a really intrinsic part. I couldn't agree more, you know, partnering with the business and actually, you know, being more visible, communicating your value. You know, that's that's what it comes down to, isn't it? Because ultimately, if you're doing these things and it is adding value, but it's not communicated to the business, it kind of gets lost in translation there. So, you know, I I'm, I do want to allow a bit of space for questions. So the last thing I wanted to kind of dig in before we just open the floor to everyone who's here today was around what because we kind of talked a lot about where we are right now and you know what's what's going on in most organizations who's owning the evp what role we could actually play as an lnd function or you know in an aspirational world how much impact we can truly deliver to support the evp what do we need as a learning function or or, or learning individuals and learning professionals what skills do we need to develop to actually attain that you know i i think we have some of them but to me, there's definitely a few. I mean, as you said, that performance consulting course, if that's super popular, you know, there's there's very much a clear need for that. Uh, I know you both have data around this, Serena from your doctor and Ed from the Accelerator Program and the Capability Map. I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on you know, what kind of future skills you believe L&D needs to develop to keep ourselves future-proofed too. Uh, so I think with the you actually said the word you said performance consulting and the key word yeah. there is consulting because as LD, we cannot be fully responsible for an employee's performance unless they're on our own team we can we consult into it we provide the tools into it but performance 
has many, many facets, as we all, all know about it. And it's that consulting skill that is what I feel L&D needs to develop. Because if you knew, if you acted Meister's trust equation, if you acted as a trusted advisor, as a consultant, then you'd be trusted as that consultant. You wouldn't be where some a business leader comes to you and says, I need a four-hour course in change management. It needs to be live. It needs to be for these 15 guys. And I need you to do a test at the end. And you'd be The conversation will be, what is the business issue you're trying to solve? And we say this, I know lots of people have said this, it's not new, but that consulting element seems to have not be so much of of our portfolio. Um, the same along the same lines, and just FYI, I have been with KPMG and IBM both as a client facing consultant and internally as a head of learning, uh, and and it's that skill which I find most important. When somebody comes to you then with a business issue, you don't go, oh, this is a business problem nail. I'm going to hit it with a coarse hammer, because. Mm-hmm. That ability to sit back and go, is this a learning problem? If I gave somebody the skill, would they still have the will to change behavior? Is this a wider cultural issue? That is a consultative mindset. And I think if we take that and we go to marketing, to talent acquisition, to HR, to our branding, with that sort of an understanding, what what is it that you look to solve? And what is it that I in L&D can contribute to it? I think that's when we'll be the biggest contributors to EVP, that, that consultative mindset. Absolutely. Mm. What's your short-term yeah, that, view, Ed? <laughs> <laughs> I think that, that interoperability is essential. So I, I shared the data point earlier, you know, less than two out of 10 for relationship with the CIO from the CLO. It's probably the same with other members of C-suite and the leadership team, that's not always the CLO's fault. Uh, L&D can be perceived by the rest of the business as a siloed cost center. Um, But in the kind of more forward-thinking organizations, it's the opposite. Um, And it's seen as driving the business forward. In terms of uh, building those relationships, I mean, anybody that's ever worked with me at the LPI, the first thing I say is that trust is the most important part of working here, trusting in our members, trusting in each other. And it's the same for L&D leaders building relationships with other people. They have to build trust and, and actually gravitas, I think, in order to be taken seriously as a department. That sounds a bit negative, but I, I still think it's true. But uh, I would say the, the short-term view of the three most important skills when it comes to learning, playing a part in EVP. Performance consultancy, as we've mentioned, is probably number one right now. Um, Second, I would say is data analytics. So being able to interpret the data from the business and even understanding where you can get it from so that you can consult more accurately based on facts. We're not very good at that. Um, Both of those two skills are very low on the capability map scores in terms of learning professionals thinking what they are good at and what they're not good at. Both of those two elements or skills capabilities score very low, Uh, but the lowest score on the whole of the capability map is marketing. And I'm not just saying that because I'm here with you guys. It's a fact, it's it's published. It's published well before this webinar. Marketing is the lowest performing skill amongst L&D professionals. 
So, it, you know, if we're serious about playing a part in EVP and playing a part in driving businesses forward, got to start telling people the great work that you do. But I just say one final thing on this. In order to do that, any L&D leaders that are on this webinar or listening to the podcast um, in the future, please don't be driven by convenience to do that. It, it's not the answer to try and make learning as convenient as possible. It, it really isn't the solution. We have so many organizations coming to us having thought that's the answer. It doesn't work. They don't create the engagement. Can you come in and work with us in building that? It's the wrong way around. So work on what an attractive proposition is, what will be impactful or efficacious, I guess, um, and then start building meaningful learning experiences based on the data that you get, not the other way around. I couldn't agree and more. We talked the other day, and I L&D I would describe as the Cinderella of business. I don't want to forget that I said that to you, Ash. I love that. Um, <laughs> I dare you to put it as your email signature for a week. Oh, it'll be on LinkedIn, Ed Monk, the Cinderella. <laughs> no, L&D is the Cinderella. It just has stuff thrown at it all the time, but never goes to the ball. So this year, it's well-being that you're responsible for. You can deal with that, L&D. So I, I have a lot of sympathy for people who are in the leadership positions in L&D. We're asking them to do a lot. And a lot of other functions don't seem to have this existential justification crisis that L&D seems to have perennially. So it's important to be um, empathetic with people in these positions. You know, there's a lot of challenges for people who are working in L&D at the moment. But if you can formulate a strong strategy based on data that shows people you're adding value to the business, it's a very exciting time to be in L&D, actually. I think that's the crux of it right there. To me, that's the biggest thing of, of all is I, we get caught in this chicken and egg cycle, I think, a lot where we are still the order takers. We're still very much seen as a cost center in some environments where our role is more operational rather than a value add. And, you know, it's something that we've all we've got to do compliance. We've got to do this, that and the other. And so it's not it's the value of L&D isn't kind of seen straight away. But I think it is up for us to maybe not ask for permission and apologize later and do you know be a bit more trailblazing in some of our approaches so that we can break away from that order taking mentality and actually show value in a different way because i think that's the crux of it until we can until we can show value the business won't see us as valuable but the business doesn't see us as valuable so they continue to prescribe learning and throw it our way mm. it's a never ending dichotomy and i'm not sure how we actually fully escape that if i'm quite well, honest Exactly. Yeah. It comes back to the data. It comes back to commercial awareness. It comes back to what's your data. Nobody gives a monkeys about happy sheets and butts on seats. Nobody gives a monkeys about how many hours were spent on a system. That all contributes to opportunity cost. What is your data from the business that shows business benefit? So, for example, and I'm going to use the academies, when I say that after the program, somebody has shown a person who has gone through an academy program takes 7,000 more calls a month than somebody who was hired with one year experience. That equates to a 350% increase in productivity. And guess what? Two years later, attrition rate went down from 38% to zero. 
nobody left from that program because I can show how learning impacted productivity. I can show how learning impacted business outcomes and I can show how the data proves it. And it's what data we choose. So the the, the commercial awareness in L&D people, so consulting, commercial awareness, and then marketing, because how many times people go, I didn't know we offered that. Uh, We're sort of like if a tree fell in the forest and nobody heard it, did it actually fall? When somebody doesn't know how to do something, the first thing they do is go to Google. The second thing they do is ask the mate. I doubt the LMS often cracks the top five. Mm. And that's because we haven't told them, hey, if this is all we offered you to make your life simpler, you would choose to, to, to learn. And the reason we don't do that is because we don't market ourselves well. Indeed. It's, it's definitely, again, perhaps a misnomer because it's something that we see with our clients a lot, but they come to us because they know they have a marketing challenge. So it's a bit of a misnomer. But nevertheless, it's definitely, you know, we do a lot of discovery sessions and talk to, you know, big bases of learners. And it comes up time and time again. I've been on calls where an employee will be talking about some of the learning proposition and someone else will literally turn around and be like, we have that. They, they don't in amongst themselves they don't even know what's available half the time so exactly how can they ever see your learning is valuable if they don't even know it exists so you know I think that the, with the best will in the world I don't think marketing is like the, the solution to a lot of this but it is a part of how we actually communicate to the business to, to again show that value and actually understand what value means to the learner and the business and prospective employees also. I could give you a list of 100 companies and it's February uh, that this year have contacted the LPI saying that they've bought an LXP and nobody's using it. And it turns out they don't have an employee engagement strategy. 100. I'm not surprised. So Send them my I mean, way. What, what are we doing? <laughs> I'm not yeah, surprised I want, though, honestly. I also wanted to just highlight, I know you want to go to questions, but uh, Gemma Glover in the chat, but there's a, there's a lot of virtue signaling around EVP. I agree. Yeah. A lot of people saying there are people focused business, including Jeff Bezos uh, coming out of that business roundtable meeting in October 2019. I'm sure he didn't expect that to be tested with a pandemic um, as to whether they really were a people focused business. So, yeah, I agree with that. It's easy to say you're doing it, but let's um, let's focus on what's really happening. Yeah. I think that's a great way to segue into the questions. I think um, there's already demand for a follow-up session on metrics, measurement, and proving value. <laughs> so, I, you know, I think this is a this is a really interesting topic and something that, you know, we really do need to start thinking more about for ourselves, really, and to future-proof our learning function as well and make sure our budgets don't get cut and make sure that we are seen as valuable and not those order takers that are just there to do the bidding of the business. Um, so I think, you know, there's, there's a, a repositioning work that needs to be done uh, in L&D in general as well. So Han, have you been taking a note of questions? I have indeed. So another question here from Gemma, how important do you think personalization is when it comes to the EVP? Um, well, I, to me, it's kind of a difficult thing because it's, it's not very easy to communicate value on a granular basis in the ways that we're talking. So I, I think EVP is quite a big it's almost like a brand thing to me um and so therefore in terms of personalizing it you could get more personal in terms of the comms that you're doing to people but that would require a little bit more understanding about 
your audiences, right? Like we can't do personalization unless we've done segmentation, unless we actually understand how to personalize. So I wouldn't say that it's necessarily going to make or break your efforts towards an EVP if you're not able to personalize. I think there are unifying messages that resonate with most people at this level, I would have thought. Yeah, I'd agree with I think it's um it's a driver, but it's definitely not the most important one. Um, mm. I think communicating <laughs> what the company actually does is really important. Basing that on the data, as Serena was talking about, Serena and I were talking about, um, using the data within the business to demonstrate that this does add value. Again, existential justification based on efficacy. But obviously, if it's personalized, it feels more like you care about me as a person and my own uh, journey in this company. So it creates a, a nice feeling, a feeling of attachment and a sense of purpose. But I think it's a dangerous spectrum um, if it moves towards let's try and make this as convenient as possible. As I was saying earlier, mm. if you're trying to drive this through immediate access to short, sharp content, um, and the algorithm is personalizing that experience for you, that alone, that on its own will not work as a strategy. It will get you so far and it will make it easy to access stuff. But as you said, Ash, or maybe it was Serena, people will go anywhere they can get the answers. So, Convenience is the fact that I don't I mean I don't need to go on the LXP. I can Google it. Um, I can use Chat GPT to get the answers. I can watch a YouTube video. So I think we just need to be careful about what the driver is. It's an important part of it, and it you know it's sexier for it to be personalized and feel like it's for me personally. Um, but I don't think it's the most important driver. And logistically accomplishing that with our limited tech stack is, uh, you know, we have a lot of tech, but its capabilities from a personalization perspective are limited, in my opinion. So, And, and arguably, arguably, it becomes impersonal, actually. Because it feels so tight. Yeah. Mm, yeah. <laughs> you might like this content because you viewed this. Mm. Um, you know, we're, I think we're beyond that now. So another question, I see Serena, you just answered this in the chat, but it will be interesting to actually mention it on the podcast. You were asked, is the future of L&D something like performance consultant? Well, I'm going to go the diplomatic way and say maybe, but um, I'll be completely honest with you. Um, I spoke to over 70 people in every country, uh, sorry, every continent, not every country, uh, every continent of this world besides Antarctica, because the penguins wouldn't give me time. Um, and everyone from um, from startup, hyper growth, unicorns, people who finished their, their seed funding, all the way to, to huge uh, organizations, not in tech, who are going through more digital transformation than they ever have uh, before in oil and gas and tobacco and all of that. So a huge data set, hundreds of hours of this stuff. Um, and it's always been, unfortunately, in, in tech startups, they, that some of the, what they've thrown back at me is, um, I see HR as our business partners. And as a business partner, they go out to the business and go, what are your issues? And maybe one of the issues that the this new CEO, the new CIO, the new teams forming will say, I have a skill problem. So as a business partner, they'll go off and find a solution to that skills problem. Why do I need an L&D function? That's one. Another example. Um, what if I just gave every employee 500 euros a year and a marketplace kind of model that they could use it on? 
this is their job description and everything they need to do, the skills of, that you need to do your job are in your job description, as are your leadership capabilities. And then how you get that. So we'll just look after compliance because, you know, and why do I need an L&D function to do that? So for me, um, the, where our value needs to become is looking at what we do and how that impacts individual performance at scale, because that's the difference between an individual learner in a classroom and the scale of an organization. That's your organizational learning. And then when you take that collective learning to impact team performance and business success, until we start drawing those links and using the data, as Ed said, to connect them, we're always going to be either a luxury to firms who are, you know, in, in spending a lot of money on growing very quickly uh, or a bit of a tick box so we can keep going back to our shareholders and saying we develop our people. So a question from Maxine, we have trouble selling L&D as a benefit because so much of our learning is around mandatory health and safety that we have to provide by law. Any ideas? Do you have to sell it if it's mandatory? No, I'm being, again, I'm being facetious. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's a, it's a question though. I know. No, I know. I'm saying you don't have to sell it if it's mandatory, but selling the kind of passion for it and the belief in it, um, I think it's important to understand what's in it for them that goes beyond the organization that they're working for when doing this. So, you know, what is this giving me that's transportable? How will this benefit me as an individual? Don't focus on how convenient it is, it is to do the learning experience, but how meaningful it is. Look at success stories of people who've been through that L&D experience. And I would also try and incorporate user-generated content into that so people can empathize with individuals that also work at the organization already um, and you know, build a kind of strong sense of belonging to the company culture. That would be my response. Yeah, I, I actually like the Ed's opening sentence. <laughs> that are, why are we, what, if, if something has to be done, it has to be done. I'm, I'm going to say something which I'm afraid is going to kill my LinkedIn inbox with, with providers saying, mandatory and compliance training is not sexy. I mean, let's stop trying to make it so. We're not doing it because it's pretty. We ain't doing it because it, it we can make it um, somebody happy to be doing it. They're doing it because they need to for governance, for compliance, for legal, for what, health and safety, for whatever reasons. That's why they're doing it. That's the bit we need to separate because a lot of that isn't about learning. It's about knowledge for compliance. That's separate. And that can be something that comes down top down. It's like say telling finance, I don't want to use your expenses system anymore. I prefer that one. No, you can't do that. This is man mandatory. This is compliance. Now, then comes the other bits wherein what makes you a whole employee and what makes you a whole employee is not just the technical compliancy stuff you need to do. It's your consulting skills. It's your soft skills. It's your business skills. It's how you in your leadership skills, your team. How do you interact? The whole what makes you a complete employee and how much of that you need in order to be move to that next level. And that's probably not a sell unless, or it is a sell or it's a harder sell if you don't link that to your career progression and your performance. So it all comes around to, Ed said it, what's in it for me? I'll do anything if I knew that I was getting something out of it. What's the purpose? And I think articulating that 
is probably where you're going to have to use a marketing angle because you all we all have it it's all yeah. there it's just not written in a way um that makes anybody want to read it never mind buy into it indeed and i think you know it, it it's it's okay to just be human about it and admit that it's just something you got to do and that's actually okay like most learners that i speak to kind of get that you know so it, it's about kind of bringing the ugly duckling into the fray and being real with it for what it is I think I think learners would really appreciate that to be honest well look guys we are at time um so I just wanted to say thank you so much for coming on and, and joining us for our first ever live podcast recording I, you know we had not too many technical difficulties I think for the most part but you know my brain is whirly wheeling I've got so much to think about so thank you so much for joining us so Serena thank you for coming and sharing your thoughts and ideas Ed you know for giving us your time too I know you guys are both very very busy so thank you so much I'm sure everyone who was joining us today really enjoyed it and everyone who will be listening on the podcast will too on behalf of me Han thank you so much for joining us guys this is the marketing for learning podcast see you later Bye. Bye.